When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the one thing all great teams have in common? Great coaching. Try to suck up to me, Evelyn. I'm Gordon Bombay, the new hockey coach. All right, let's go! Learn me! Come on! 14 USA, gathered from all across America. And we're going to stick together. You know why? Because we are ducks, and ducks fly together. It's the Quack Attack Podcast. Hey, everybody. Well, we don't really practice, per se. I'm Mike, that's Tommy. Hello, everyone. That's Kevin. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Quiet Day Podcast. I'm not going to waste any time because we had technical difficulties and we kept our guest waiting on the line. He is Jack Redford, J-A-C Redford. I'm going to get into that in a second. But he composed D2 and D3, composer among uh, dozens of other things, orchestrator, nominated for Emmys. He's sort of a big deal. Jack, thanks for being here. appreciate it. Well, happy to join you. It is so. Your first name is an acronym. Uh, your full name, yeah, like, that's right, that's right. It is John, an acronym. <laughs> is it? Do you go by Jack or do you? Is it J A C? I go by Jack professionally. I put J A C in the credits, and uh, my full name is Jonathan Alfred Clausen Redford. That's pretty cool. I wish I had which, which may which makes it necessary to go by something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that something you went by like your whole life? Did you go by Jack? Or is that something that you just... Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, I, my parents gave me the name. Um, my dad had three first names, but they didn't spell anything that you could use. Um, mine did, and so it made the acronym possible and easy to, to do. So I've just... I've always gone by jack okay gotcha so unless my mom was mad at me in which case she would call me jonathan alfred Clausen. <laughs> get in here yeah <laughs> we've been on the receiving end of some of those as well uh, growing up. <laughs> so let's sort of start at the beginning uh how do you just first of all get into composing and orchestrating for movies and tv it seems like uh something that's fairly difficult to sort of break into how does that all happen for you well, I don't know if my story is normative for anyone else, but for me, um, I started writing music when I was still a kid. I actually made up scores in my head when I was when I was a little kid. When I was in high school, I started writing them down. I never really experienced um, a gap in uh, between hearing music in my head and and writing it. It all came very naturally to me. My mom was a singer. My dad was a was a theater professor. And uh, we listened to a lot of music in the home. So by the time I was in, I wrote a lot of music for my high school stage band. I started out writing jazz, uh, played in a rock and roll band, wrote songs. And by the time I was in college, I was writing for a documentary and educational films. And at a certain point, I felt like I might have an aptitude for it. So I decided to move either to New York or to Los Angeles. And because I was a Westerner, Los, An- Los Angeles seemed like the, the natural place to go. I actually was born in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but I uh, didn't grow up here. Okay. So uh, I moved to Los Angeles. My wife and I gave ourselves about 10 years to, to see if we could make something out of it. Um, 
within the first within the first year, I had opportunity to uh, collaborate with some other guys on uh, Starsky and Hatch, the original television nice. program. And uh, from there on, it sort of mushroomed out into a lot of TV series, television, movies, uh, films. And and then I kind of took a turn in the 90s and started orchestrating for James Horner and then finally for Tom Newman. So that's been really interesting and I've enjoyed that. Um, uh, Jack, real quick. Um, so for people who aren't as musically inclined like myself, um, can you tell me it's a little bit of the difference between orchestrating and composing? Yeah, sure. Um, probably everybody... Uh, all of your listeners would be familiar with piano music. They've probably seen piano music either uh, in a church or in a or in a music store. Uh, piano music is the composition. I mean, if you looked at a piece of music that just had treble and bass clef and music mm-hmm. written out for those for just that instrument, that that's a composition, full and complete. If you wanted to take that same composition and have it played by an orchestra, you couldn't simply put that music down in front of an orchestra player, an oboist or a violinist or a tuba player, and, and expect them to be able to make it sound like an orchestra. Someone has to be the traffic cop for all of that. And so that's where an orchestrator comes in. A lot of times a composer will orchestrate his own music, but in film, um, you know, there's not enough time in the schedule sometimes, and, and sometimes the, the composers don't have training as orchestrators, but only composing. So basically the orchestrator's task is to take the composition and to flesh it out so that a whole orchestra can play those notes. Hmm. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a super clear explanation, and that I'm, I never knew that, and that's good to know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so you might have, you know, just, you could have a simple melody just written down with one line and a composer could write it down, put some chord symbols over it, uh, as per a song and then say, I need seven minutes of a chase. <laughs> and in Hollywood, that counts as orchestration. Okay. That's cool. But it can also go all the way to the other side of the spectrum where a guy could be John Williams and hand you an orchestrate, hand you a sketch and it has everything, absolutely everything written out on it, uh, a lot of verbal indications, you know, where the second clarinet plays and where it doesn't play, and everything written out, and that too is orchestration. So it, it can run the gamut from from the most, um, you know, the most simple sorts of resources being provided, and then you have to really work it into something, to virtually everything indicated, and you're copying it over into a template, you know. Uh, so for for years and years in classical music, uh, classical symphonic music composers did their own orchestrations it was part of the ethos of being a classical composer but um, you know in Hollywood a lot of those a lot of those tasks have to be divided up amongst different um, different professionals in order to get the job done on time and so, so that's how it works out how, how does so how does that relationship work with somebody who like scores a film and and or, or what is the difference there? Well, take someone who composes primarily on MIDI instruments. Uh, doesn't necessarily write the music down on paper. Uh, obviously, if you've got an orchestra of 100 players, each of them is going to have to have a piece of paper in front of them you know, with their music, and that music has to fit together with everyone else's part. 
to create the sound of the orchestra that we're familiar with. Uh, it doesn't just happen by accident. And so somebody has to decide who plays where and who stops playing, you know, at any given point. <laughs> Um, so, and, and that becomes a, that be, there are a lot of aesthetic decisions that are made there because, you know, obviously you can't have play, everybody playing all the time or else it would just be mush. So there are a lot of decisions that have to be made. Now, a good MIDI composer already anticipates orchestration decisions. Somebody like Tom is just thoroughly versed with the orchestra and working with him is just a wonderful experience. He's a great collaborator and a terrific composer. And I enjoy every minute of working with him. Um, and we have, we've got a great, uh, great, uh, conversation that goes on during the course of a project uh, about all the details of the work. And I had something like that with James too, uh, while he was alive. Uh, although the two guys have very different personalities. And so it took a, a different form working with James than it does with Tom. But, um, but both of them were very, are very astute. Oh, so let's back up a second. How do, first we like to talk about the Mighty Ducks, obviously. How do you end right. up composing D two and then D three? How do you end up with that sort of assignment? Well, I've been doing some work for uh, Jordan Kerner uh, on some television uh, movies prior to the Mighty Ducks and <laughs> the Mighty Ducks, and I also knew uh, the director of D two from a theatrical. Um, experience that we had together working on Shakespeare. So, um, so I had, I had connections with the people that were in charge and it just was a natural, you know, kind of, kind of worked out. They, I think they all liked my music and wanted me to, to work on it. So after I'd done two and they enjoyed that, um, then three came along afterwards and that worked, worked out as well. Were, were you familiar at all with, uh, the original Mighty Ducks before you kind of started this? role sure yeah i was i was familiar with it i'd seen the picture um and uh i knew david dubin's music for it so i didn't know it really like note for note by note but i, I was aware of the style it had been used to create it and, and the theme was a memorable one and so um but in terms of like being a fan it's it wasn't um Guys who work in the business aren't aren't fans necessarily. We're professionals, <laughs> so it's a little bit of a different kind of relationship, you know, mm -hmm. than it is um, working in the business is different than than uh, being a fan of a particular project or something like that. It's, it's just a different kind of way of of relating to the to the material and the experience. That's interesting. You mentioned that. I was I was gonna ask? Can you like watch a movie or a television show and just kind of like sit back and relax, or are you always listening to the music, being like, "Oh, that's good," or like, "Oh, wow, that really sucks." <laughs> well, a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> I don't turn off my I don't turn off my professional instincts. It actually heightens the enjoyment of a really good product, um, good film, a good story. Um, but if it's done badly, it does kind of ruin it. <laughs> 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 so fortunately, you know, there are enough good films out there to to occupy your attention at <laughs> any given time. <laughs> uh, quick follow-up. Um, is there a, a movie that might be perceived in the public image as being kind of like a bad movie, not really good reviews, where the mu music is actually really good that just kind of like stands out to you? Well, take a film like um, 
seventh voyage of Sinbad back in the in the sixties, I think. Mm-hmm. Bernard Herman did a fantastic score for that film. But the film is kind of you know, <laughs> not that great. <laughs> but the music is fabulous. It, it was there a, kind of going back to the the being a fan of 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 the franchise or not? Um, was there ever like a project that you were a big fan of, whatever it was, the story that you really wanted to take part in the project? Um, was there anything along those lines? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think the things that have excited me the most about the projects I've worked on have been either the the individual story of that. I'm very story oriented, and if the story is good, I get excited about a project. Um, but also relationships are things that interest me. Um, if the combination of people that are working on the on the film are interesting uh, people and, and uh, have made things that are interesting beforehand, you know, then I get then I get excited about it. I'm not really I don't really. I think more in terms of that, I think more of the individual um, texture and contours of each project, not so much whether uh, as part of a series. I will say that, you know, I have worked on television series and really loved them. Hmm. I worked on St. Elsewhere for many years. Well, all the years it was on the air, for example, and I really got to love that series. And um, that was a, a real joy to work on that. Nominated for two Emmys for St. Elsewhere. Uh, you talked about this a little bit, but you said you were familiar with David Newman's score in D1. How much did you go back and sort of study what he did before you go into D2? Or, or do you want to hold new sort of uh, your own sort of take on it? Do you look at that a lot? Or is that just something you sort of have in the back of your mind? Well, no, I did some study on it. I got a hold of, of some of his scores because, first of all, I mean, the producer... And director wanted to make use of the musical identity that D1 had created. And that makes perfect sense when you're doing sequels. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the first one always creates a sense of, of, of musical persona that uh, you want to carry forward into the next ones. And so, um, so yeah, that was important to me to be able to fulfill that. Um, it was good for the picture. It was good for the relationships. Um, in every respect, it was the right thing to do to bring that theme forward. So I wanted to find ways. And there were some, you know, there are always some limitations on the ways that you can use those themes. Obviously, mm-hmm. you don't want to re- replicate the entire score. That wouldn't be right. And besides, the story is new. Mm-hmm. So there are new points of conflict. The, the kids are older. They've grown up. They, they have different kinds of, there are different dynamics to their relationships. And and so you want the, the music for each sequel to be you want each sequel to be treated as an independent project, an independent story or set of stories that has its own its own identity. But at the same time, it's carrying forward sort of this longer story, this longer arc of of identity that was begun in the first film. So it's kind of a balance. You know, you find the places in the films, in the sequels, you find the locations where the theme is going to make the most sense. And for D2 and D3, that usually meant when they pulled together as a team, when, when, when they pulled together and they found uh, unity as the Ducks. And whenever that happened, it just felt natural to utilize the main theme in some respect. We didn't always use it straight out. Sometimes we would use it, but we would use it in, a, in an altered way. But most of the time when it was used um, in 
the straightforward way, it was because the ducks had found their unity again. You know, so it was that kind of thing. I don't know if that makes sense to you. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Can, can you kind of maybe walk through your process a little bit? Like, do you like read through the script and then kind of start coming up with ideas? And then kind of as a, as a follow up to that, like, was there at any point when you were going through this process, when you maybe read the script or, or, or saw uh, parts of the film and you thought, Oh, I know exactly what to do here. Yeah. Most of those impulses come uh, after looking at the film uh, for me, I think most composers respond very much to visual cues and auditory cues, more so than the written page. There's there's always a difference, and sometimes big differences between what you actually read on the page and the way the actors realize that in you know in the shoot. And um, and so it's not, it, it sort of doesn't pay to write music to a script unless there's specific pre-programmed um, music that's required. Um, Sometimes there is something like that. It needs to be written before the shoot because they need to use it during the shoot. Um, there was something sort of like that on Mighty Ducks 2 that didn't end up in the final film. But um, anyway, the, the script stage is usually not the best place for a, for a composer to begin to, to generate musical ideas. It's just You just draw too much from, from the visual stimulation you know and from the from what you hear the sound of the voices and besides uh, you know there again i mean in in listening to the way that dialogue is is created in a scene uh, the range of the voices makes a lot of difference in in how you treat the the music you want to stay out of the out of the way of particular ranges of of dialogue because you'll interfere with them if you play music in that register and so sometimes your music is kind of dictated by what you what you hear and see on the screen, you can't pick that up from a script. So, so you come in at the stage where you're actually looking at scenes. Usually, you've seen more than a, more, more than the first rough cut. Usually, mm-hmm. you've seen the picture that's been edited and is, you know, well along. Uh, and then you come in and you look at the look at the picture. You spot it with the with the director. Spotting it means you pick the spots where the music is supposed to go. That's a long, a long meeting. I mean, you might go in there for a two-hour film and spend, you know, eight, twelve hours going through the picture and just (laughs) discussing every detail about where the music is going to start and stop. And it just depends a lot on the way that the director wants to handle that meeting. But um, it can be pretty, uh, (laughs) it can be pretty harrowing sometimes. (laughs) Anyway, once you have the idea of where the music is going to go. You go back home and you start tinkering with it. And uh, I'm I'm a pencil and paper guy. I write um, I write on on paper um, and and then enter data, you know, in the computer afterwards. But I like to generate my ideas, you know, away from an instrument, um, so that I'm not limited by my technique, you know, by my performing technique. Yeah, you talked about there was so, like. Oh, go ahead. You know, I'd come up with themes, go back and play it for, uh, mainly for Jordan. Um, in the case of, uh, I'm trying to remember what, how the meetings went. <laughs> I would play some stuff for him on the piano or maybe record something really rough. This was back in the day before mock-ups had become so developed. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he was, you know, when he was happy with something, he'd let me know. And so then I'd go home and begin to work on the individual scenes. Here's one thing that maybe your listeners and you guys won't have thought of, but for many of the scenes, I like to conduct before I actually 
conduct something before I actually write the music to a scene. I'll just, I like to just move my hands with the scene oh. because I want to pick up the rhythm out of the scene instead of imposing a rhythm on it. Hmm. So I'll just play with the scene with my hands, just kind of trying different tempos and trying different approaches to a scene physically, you know, just with my hands to try and feel the rhythm that's actually in the scene. You know, rhythm is created by cuts and movement that you mm -hmm. see on the screen and by, by dialogue. And there are all kinds of things that create rhythm. If you can pull a rhythm out that dances with the rhythms that are already there, you're in a far better, you know, much better to do that than to try and superimpose a rhythm on top of a scene and try and make it all, you know, dance to the beat that you're creating apart from what's already been created. When you're composing a film score, you're kind of writing counterpoint to things that already exist. So it's good to pay attention to those things. Was Was there any point when you were kind of going through that process where you had, whether in your head or uh, maybe roughed it out or anything like that, um, that you really liked that didn't end up making it into the movie that you were disappointed by? Or movies that you were disappointed by? Well, it was a long time ago. I, I don't remember. I don't remember whether it was anything that I was really disappointed. <laughs> I was pretty happy with the way those scores turned out. I mean, I, I, felt, um, I felt good about it and got good response from the people I was working with and so it was a that was a very good experience for me and we had great bands playing the music um, so you know, I can't really think of anything that I felt bad about leaving out but then I don't tend to hold on to those things I tend mm. to think more about stuff that made it in <laughs> see so you may not remember this but one question I have um, so in D2 there's a scene where Team USA has to play Trinidad and Tobago and so mm -hmm. Trinidad and Tobago, I guess they kind of ham it up. And, you know, when they score, they're like playing steel drums. Did you have to work around that? Or do they, did you, were you involved in those like, hey, let's make sure we get this sounding right or anything? Or is that more of like live instruments on set? I remember having to work around that. Um, there, I believe you saw some steel drums. In the right, yeah. Wow. This, but if you saw the steel drums playing, then we definitely had to work around it. Hmm. That meant either leaving space for or writing music that would go along with it. You know, you mentioned a little while ago about there was like a pre-recorded thing that didn't make it in. Do you remember anything about what that was and it di that didn't make the cut there? Yeah, it was um, it was uh, Melissa Etheridge singing the national anthem. Wow. <laughs> oh, okay. Or, no, wait, no, it wasn't the National Anthem. It was uh, oh, Beautiful for Spacious Skies. That's it. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. What, was yeah, there a we went down reason? to the pond and, and, uh, and shot it um, down there, and we recorded it separately, and she was synced to it, I believe, whilst at the pond. And, and um, yeah, that didn't actually end up making it into the, into the film, as I recall. You don't remember seeing it there, do you? No, it's not in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it Was there a reason they could, they obviously wanted it from early on? Was there a reason they just cut it? Did it just not work? Well, it didn't. It wasn't that it didn't work musically. She did a great job. She sounded terrific. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, a lot of things end up on the, on the cutting room floor mm -hmm. when the pacing of the film is not benefited by keeping something in. And um, the uh, I'm trying to remember um, I'm trying to remember who did what on the 
you know, I can't remember all the details about it, but, but yeah. I, I, I feel that it was probably most likely that it was a pacing issue, not a, an issue of, of it not working. Sure. I mean, uh, maybe they maybe they didn't get the shots they wanted. Maybe there was something, you know, about the shots that wasn't, you know, exactly what they were wanted to see. But I, I don't really, I don't really. That's not that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> um, Do, so. You know, I imagine it was something that when they got the whole film cut together, it just felt like it, it held up the movement forward of the plot rather than right, rather than aiding it. Hmm. Do, uh, you mentioned earlier how great the bands were that played. Uh, what goes into the process of kind of choosing the bands or, or hiring for, for who does that work? Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, there are standard... Um, you know, the makeup of, a, of an orchestra is a fairly standard uh, group of, of musicians. And so you start with that. And the, in, we recorded D2 in Los Angeles, and we recorded D3 in London. And so we, for the two films, we had, you know, both American and English musicians. And uh, both of the bands were outstanding. It was a... Uh, it was really a great, you know, great experience to work with with both of them, and and they were orchestral players for the most part. Although we did have some, you know, we did have some rock and roll players. On D two, I remember hiring, um, I remember um, hiring Lee Sklar on that playing bass, who had played with uh, James Taylor and Jackson Brown and a lot of guys like that, and he was great. He did some stuff, some amazing stuff on that on that soundtrack. But one of the one of the things that he did best on was uh, was a thing that ended up being replaced by a song. So you know <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is something I'm curious about, just from like a creative standpoint. Like, it's tough to know when something is like done. Like, how when do you sort of like realize that? <laughs> oh, this is done. This is ready to go, and this is gonna work with the film. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, you just, you don't know until they actually put the film out. I mean, literally, <laughs> yeah. you don't know until the film gets, comes out. Um, with, um, <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, like, for example, on Avatar, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we did uh, that pterodactyl helicopter fight 13 different times in the course of that film. And, and when I went to the movie to see the film, when it was released, uh, what we had done still wasn't in the in there in the way that we'd done it. it. It had been chopped up and moved around in different places. So I mean, they have uh, carte blanche, you know, to move the stuff around afterward. I was fortunate on these two Mighty Ducks movies that there wasn't a lot of that that happened. They kept the cues in the film pretty much as they'd been created, and the things that I put in that uh, that were replaced by songs, I knew that there was a chance that they were going to be that there was a, a song in those locations. But I wanted to give them the chance to have if the song didn't work out. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to be up a creek. You know, I wanted them to have something that would be, you know, workable and help help the scene and be related to the score. So that if the song didn't work out, they wouldn't be stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes you do that. I mean, you have to be willing to to write music that won't necessarily, you know, stay, because you because you're you know you're doing a job. You're trying to help them 
help them out, have have a have a score they can work with. <laughs> Does anything stick out in your mind that was like you thought was particularly great that in any film, uh, regardless of of what it was that you worked on, that didn't make it in that you were just kind of bummed about? No, I can't remember anything in particular um, from those two films. Um, what about other films that you've worked on? Honestly, I just don't really don't keep those things in my head. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of practical about that. Yeah, the film is what it is when you when you're done with it. And sometimes I'll ha- sometimes I'll keep those tracks. And when I put together a you know a soundtrack for me to, to have you know it'll have all the music on it, even the alternate you know the alternate takes and the alternate tracks. If I think there was something there that was you know, interesting, but um, hmm. I don't, you know, I don't really have a lot of regrets about, <laughs> about stuff like that. <laughs> uh, Jack, I know we're, we're getting close to time here. Um, other than, you know, of course, the Mighty Ducks movies, is there a particular um, film or TV show that you're you're most proud of um, um, working on or a particular piece of music that you think, you know, we should really listen to that you've done? Well, uh the, the scores that I did for um, St. Elsewhere, I'm really proud of. I thought that series had a really strong musical identity, and, and I felt really good about that. And The Trip to Bountiful is one of my scores that um, I'm really proud of. Um, I think the, the two Mighty Ducks movies uh, stand out for me as, as really good experiences and, and strong uh, strong scores. Um, I have six albums out of classical music of my my own classical music and so you know if you want to get to know my music um that's a good way to do it (laughs) (laughs) to listen to some of that that's the stuff that i have to write you know not in counterpoint with with other ideas so you know that's i feel pretty good about my my uh tv movies I, i think i had a lot of opportunity to um to do interesting scores. Um, in some respects, I, I had a lot, you know, there was a lot of freedom in those TV scores, things that, um, where I could try things, you know, and, and so I, I like, I've got a good collection of, of uh, television movies that I worked on. So I did some stuff for Avnet uh, Kerner. Uh, Mama Flora's Family was a big one that I did for them, and that turned out really well. And, and, and is there a, an artist or composer who uh, has really kind of influenced you or you kind of like to draw inspiration from their work? Well, yeah. The, I mean, the whole... Uh, if I started down that road, we <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of music. I love classical music. I listen to early music and I listen to contemporary English and, and American composers um, a lot. I listen to... Gosh, I mean, I... Everything Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. I'd say, you know, 20th century um, Stravinsky, Shostakovich. Gosh, how can I start? I'll leave, somebody <laughs> out. I'll leave a ton of people out. It's um, they have influenced me the most in the area of film. I would say that um, Bernard Herrmann um, has been a big influence. Um, John Williams, I think, has been a huge influence. I love the I love the music that I've been able to to work 
on with Tom and with James. Those were two composers that whose whose music I really enjoy, as well as enjoying the the working you know process with them. And uh, enjoyed working with Randy when I was orchestrating for him too. He's terrific. So Randy Newman, that is. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I just I, I like music. I like listening <laughs> to all kinds of music. And I just have never grown tired of it. <laughs> is, is there anyone uh, doing it particularly well right now? Maybe like a, a, a maybe an up and comer in the industry that, that you can think of that you can maybe call out? Well, I, I think Tom is the first guy that, who's, whose name I would put up there. I think he's writing fabulous music. And the most recent thing that we did together um, Victoria and Abdul is a wonderful score, but his scores for Saving Mr. Banks or Bridge of Spies or Finding Dory, I mean, they were all really spectacular scores. So, I mean, I have to say, listen to Tom Newman's music. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool to hear it like described that way because that's such like a wide range of, of genres. Yeah. Um, so it, it's pretty cool to, to kind of see that, how it's pretty consistent across, like regardless of genre. Yeah, yeah. He writes in... He writes in a lot of different styles. I mean, I don't know if you um, ever heard his score for The Good German, uh, but it's vastly different than the score, say, for Finding Dory. <laughs> but that same quality of composition is there. And it's a, it's a spectacular score and completely different than what you would think of as a Tom Newman score. <laughs> so one of the things you did, was you orchestrated the score for Skyfall, which had mm-hmm. the Oscar-winning Adele song there. Are right. you, uh, yeah, are you like in the room when she's singing? Like, how does that work? Well, I was the arranger for that. Um, I arranged and conducted that that song. So um, I wasn't in the room when she recorded it because you know the way songs are done now, you do the pre-recording in advance of the, the arrangement. And so she came in and laid her tracks when, you know, when... Uh, I wasn't even a gleam in the producer's eye. So, <laughs> you know, it was well before the, mm-hmm. before the arrangement was thought of. But um, once I got on board, the night that we recorded the arrangement, Adele came and um, worked with her collaborator, Paul Epworth. He was producing the session. And it was a really great working relationship. Paul was really clear about what he wanted. I was able to provide it for him. And we really tweaked that arrangement so that it was just the way that they they wanted it to be. And and Adele really loved hearing the whole orchestra playing her song. You know, she was a co-writer on the song as well as being a performer. And went into the booth at one point, and it was kind of the first time she'd heard a full orchestra playing with one of her songs in that, in that same way, or at least with a Bond song. And she was really quite moved by it. I, I think she loved the sound of the orchestra, and, and it really... You know, touched her. So I was grateful for that. That um, that I, you know, hadn't spoiled her experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there was something that she really liked, and yeah. I wanted them to be happy with it. So yeah, no pressure there. All right. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. All right, Jack. We do this thing called the Quack Question, where fans send us in questions. We try to answer them. So we ask for questions related to you. And so Kevin has a Quack Question for you right now. I think I'm okay. gonna do. I think I'm gonna do two because okay. they're 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 two pretty good ones. Um, so the first one comes from Brian, who's at Bberg19 on Twitter. Uh, 
this question is how challenging was it to score D3, which is still a kid's movie, but far more serious than D2. How did you reflect this change musically? I've been, I don't treat any of the films as kids movies. Um, any of the films I work on, I treat them as, um, stories about people. Mm-hmm. And if the people are younger than other people, it doesn't, you know, that's a factor obviously in their characters, but it's not an overarching, um, doesn't make an overarching. In other words, I don't write down for kids. Mm-hmm. I try and treat the dramatic situations and the, and the stories in the way that that, that particular drama or conflict or, or character development ought to be treated in the moment. I, I don't really think of, oh, this is a kid's movie, so I've got to, you know, do something different because it's for kids I, I just try and i try and treat everything about the film with um you know with serious intent and try and approach it as 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 the film needs to be approached the film tells you basically how it's supposed to be treated and so i try to take that seriously and be attentive to all those things i don't i don't really try and write down for kids i just try and write honestly hmm. that's pretty cool i never really thought of it that way yeah um the, our second question comes from uh, our friend Bobby Lemaire, who's at Air Lemaire on Twitter. Uh, and his question is, did you know you struck gold after coming up with the song for Han's funeral? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really know that. I didn't, um, you know, I, I just tried to treat that scene with the respect that it deserved, you know. I, I tried to write something that would be that would have some heart and soul to it, and that would, you know, I tried to dig down and figure and feel how I feel, how I felt when I've lost a mentor, or how I would feel if I'd lost that mentor, and what that would mean to me, and try and pull something out that would be honest uh, emotionally about that about that situation. I've been to enough funerals now to have some inkling of what you know, what that, what grief feels like. And so I wanted to, but it wasn't a a grief without any hopefulness because he left a great legacy. And, and so I wanted to be grief that was tinged with some sense of, of hope as well, or at least of, of the, um, of grief mixed with gratefulness for the kind of man that he was and the legacy that he left. Well, bravo, because it is a fantastic scene. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) All right. Jack, we have so many questions, but we're already over time. So we're going to let you go here. Uh, the things I will tell the listeners, jackredford.com. That's J-A-C redford.com. You can learn about Jack there. You can buy some of the scores he was talking about uh, that he writes for himself and, and stuff like that. That's all at the store. Go there. Uh, for us, thequackdeck.com, at quackdeckpod on Twitter, facebook.com slash quackdeckpod. Go to iTunes. Give us five stars. Tell us your favorite musical moment in the Mighty Ducks. And remember, ducks fly together. Ducks fly together. Quack, quack. <laughs>